Alright guys. You alright? Yeah. See the match. Which one? Dunno. <laughs> Hello, welcome back to another free episode of TF. It's the free one. Yeah, when did that start? I don't know, oh, no, but you're changing it every time now. It was when you made me stop doing the bonus voice on the free apps, because they have to pay for that. Yeah, they have to pay for the bonus voice. Yeah, you uh, want the sexy bonus voice, subscribe to the yeah, Patreon. Yeah, did you get right. the irritating free one voice. The free one. Yes, the irritating voice that our listeners, especially <laughs> probably our new listeners today, will like so well. They'll love it. They're going to absolutely love it. Now, you may wonder why we were hearing from um, our uh, actually secret sixth mic on the show, Alan Partridge, earlier. Mm. Yeah. It's because... He mostly does production stuff. But... <laughs> That's right. Uh-huh. Alan Partridge, who's Nate's assistant. Mm. Um, we have uh, decided... He's a, he's a ruddy bloody yank. <laughs> ...to branch out of our uh, normal comfort area of talking about, you know, uh, financial scams and Mm. weird startups and companies and stuff. Uh, And instead, uh, talk about football, uh, which, upon my investigation of it, turns out to be much of the same. Yeah. Who could have possibly predicted? But in order to help us uh, investigate the history and uh, sort of, you might say, a story, a decline, fall, possible renaissance, who can say, of football. It is uh, Musa Akwanga, author and podcaster and co-host of the Stadio Football Podcast. Musa, how's it going? It's great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Cheers for this. My pleasure. Yes, indeed. Yeah. We're very <laughs> excited to learn about football, something which none of us know anything about. <laughs> My dad tried and failed. Save yourselves now. Save yourselves now. <laughs> That's yes. right. Uh, so by the end of this, so basically, right, if you want to understand the offside rule, all you have to do is listen to the entirety of this podcast about, like, transfer financing, and you'll get it. Yeah, take oh, out goodness. your official Trash Future salt and pepper shakers now, uh-huh. uh, and array them in the table on the Trash Future bingo card, and then we'll begin explaining. <laughs> That's right. Um, so look, we're going to be talking all about, um, a little bit about this whole European Super League thing, but also... We're gonna be a, a, we're gonna Adam Curtis it a little bit. We're gonna be a little bit tasking this story. How do we get to where we are? But first, but first, there's a startup I've been wanting to talk about, and we've never gotten to talk about it so far because I've never found the right time. So I'm insisting that that time is now. Okay, it is the football index. Is it oh, an no. index linked fund, but for football? Uh, more or less, but um, I how? would say it's connected. Explain how? Well, <laughs> uh. Musa, do you, what? What is it? Uh, what is the football index? It's a oh my goodness! It's a, a house of cards pyramid scheme. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it, it's it feels. Um, it's interesting that you know Bernie Bernie Madoff died um, around Rocky. this time in the football index. And it, Friend of the show. Similar wheelhouse. Mm. Similar wheelhouse. Um, betting on imaginary value, basically. Mm. Um, how do I explain football index? Oh, it's the rest of well, the economy. So okay, I've, I've, I understand. I've got a little yeah. bit more information here. It's basically yeah. a virtual stock market oh, where you can okay. buy and sell shares for the benefit of the listener. I'm doing big fantasy stock about market, that, except with real money because okay. it says based on the performance of um, of that player. So you can invest in I don't know Robin or whatever, uh, and then you know depending yeah. on how he does. Who's around these days? Jimmy Greaves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will name one football player. Um, Michael okay, Seaman? You, 
you can inv- mm. you can invest yeah. in Robert Lewandowski. <laughs> Give and me then... one hundred Teddy Sheringham. <laughs> so he's not played for <laughs> one Stanley Matthews. Please. Look, yeah. I'll, the only football players I know play for Bayern. <laughs> Sorry, or play or played for Bayern. Um, Wait, why Bayern? Okay, so basically, like it's looking at the. Um, I suppose the, the fundamental principle is quite simple. So you have an athlete who has a particular, um, who's, he's a performer at a particularly high level, and you mm-hmm. basically go, I'm going to buy shares in that person, but I know that person's performance because of like fatigue, injury, is going to tank in the next like six months. So basically, I'll, I'll buy that person's, um, I'll, I'll invest in that player and say, like, their, their, share, their share value is 75, but I know that like six months from now, the share value is going to drop to like 14. So Are you going like, to short that player? Potentially, there's, there's there's ways of doing that. There's like ways of doing that. So you can you can short the player. You can so it's, it's that kind of same essence. So the base the player is like the player is like anything with a value that can change sharply over time, right? That's, so it's, it just happens that it just happens to be with the football index they're using footballers, but it could be any anything, mm. right? Mm. Now this was the idea: you'd trade the value of a player, so you'd pick like say a young player who was 19 years old, and you'd know that basically. Two years from now, that player is going to have like explosion in value. So you buy that player for 14. Two years later, the value flies to 120. You sell a player at the top of the market. No, they'll get an injury a year from then. And they'll go down to 36 again. So you make a value and you pull out the money. Mm. Now, this mm. is all like, you know, nice, easy stock market principles. But the reason this is such a pyramid scheme, well, it kind of is anyway, because who, det- who determines the value of these players like in, in the stock market? Mm. That's the first problem. Second yeah. thing was- 120 arbitrary football units, which we all right. understand. Yeah, exactly, right. Exactly. The other yeah. thing was- so, so what happened was a lot of like primarily young men sitting at home in isolation got very emotionally invested in this because they're emotionally invested in football. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, being emotionally invested in this is like being emotionally invested in QAnon, mm. right? And waiting for the day of Q. And it was basically a big pyramid scheme. And a lot of people were taken for a ride because a lot of the money being pumped into the scheme was a pyramid scheme. The dividends being paid out were basically just being paid out of not the growing market, but it's people just like shoving money in at deposits. Mm, yeah. And when people came for their, their dividends at once, or when people came to cash out at once, the thing collapses. Yeah. And that what the Madoff scheme relied upon was trust, right? It relied on people not all coming for their money at once because, mm. you know, everyone could trust this guy. He was everyone's mate. And mm. the system relies on, the sad thing was it exploits the most, um, in a way, non-fungible thing of all, which is human int- intimacy and trust, mm. right? It, mm. it commoditizes trust, shared love, um, and yeah, and this whole mm. thing imploded very recently. So that's basically like in a nutshell what the football index is and did. Uh, how about QPR and on? How do we feel about that? <laughs> very good. <laughs> there we go. He's done it. He's- yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. That's the sort of <laughs> shit I do. QPR is related to this, in fact, specifically. Okay. Uh, so, but how it worked was in the mechanically is that what you would do is you'd buy and sell claims on. Um, on bets, so mm. what you were actually buying and selling was a um, was was in fact a, a a a bet on this player that would be like have a very like have a very long um end end date, but the mm. dividends were all from other people making other bets. So essentially, it was right. in fact it it was a it was a quite literal pyramid scheme. Yes, yes, and yes. what is in and because the operator keep the the they, they keep they needed to keep minting a certain amount of new shares every day and sell them for more than they would be quote unquote worth so they could keep paying all this money out. And what's interesting though, and why I bring this up, is that the football index, uh, this actual literal pyramid scheme, was the shirt sponsor of both Nottingham Forest and Queens Park Rangers also. Oh good. Oh. Yeah. 
I'm glad that and we don't think, already have everyone sort of primed to gamble on sort of imaginary football futures already with stuff like FIFA Ultimate Team or whatever. <laughs> you're completely right. Well, that's actually, and you're, here's the kind of segue towards the Super League, actually, which we'll get onto a bit. These games are priming people to bet because every yeah. night you're simulating outcomes and you're playing FIFA, you know, you're, you're, you're simulating outcomes between your favorite teams teams that you'd like to see. So already there's a kind of gamification. So, so the frustration towards players on the pitch or athletes grows because when you're playing FIFA every night, your players at 99%, but the average footballer has like, you know, ebb and flow in form. They're not machines, but people mm. are conditioned to seeing high performance every night because they're playing with these players. We can, we count. With the wage inflation too, you get the thing of like, well, you're not allowed to get one of these weird injuries that only footballers get, like straining your groin. Uh, b- because like we're, we're paying you however many million quid a year, mm-hmm. a week, a month to, exactly, to do yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, indeed. To be fair, I don't think many people who support Nottingham Forest are concerned about the uh, ultra high performance all of the time. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I don't think they're under any illusions. Wow, someone's firing shots tonight. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, that, the football index would like to uh, distance themselves from Nottingham Forest Football Club. <laughs> Do you um, know what's so funny? You know what's so funny about um, these podcasts? You always wonder when you come on a podcast, who's the chaotic element? Because it's always one, right? <laughs> like, like all of us. There's not only one on this one, Musa. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Entropy no, always. There is. There is one non-chaotic element on this one, and I'm holding it all together. Uh, so, um, so basically, right? This is the, the reason I wanted to bring up the football index, right? Is, um, I mean, it's it's interesting enough as for a podcast in its own right, yeah. but like realistically, right? It is a uh, actual pyramid scheme uh, that was licensed by the uh, the gam- all the gambling mm. authorities. That was a shirt sponsor of two uh, championship clubs. Uh, and so on and so on. And I think that just gives us a little bit of an introduction to our main topic, which is the European Super League, how we got to where we are, and how football became essentially like the rest of the economy, this kind of casino for billionaires that has, um, incidentally, some football being played. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think like just to, to as a beginning, right, I think one of the things that I was thinking about when we were sort of putting together the sort of notes for this, was that the European Super League, which we'll talk about sort of what it is, it's all, it is the kind of the apotheosis of the neoliberal project in mm. football, because you have to understand that the neoliberal project was never just about shielding capital's desire to extract wealth from democratic control. It was about shielding it from risk altogether. Democracy yes. was just one of those risks, but competition is another one of those risks. And what we're going to see is like this desire to shield returns, ability to pay back debt, get better interest rates and stuff from the very competitiveness that you would mm. think probably defines a sport. The, the ultimate yeah. form of this is just just simulate the matches, you know? Yeah. Just purely Why have, have <laughs> a computer that tells you Bolton won, you know, 2-0 <laughs> and just be done with it. You know what I love about this? What your your critique, and I love it, is um, I think of the Hunt for Red October, that movie. When was that? Like nineteen nineties? It came out, I think. I think ninety. Yeah. There's one. So. There's one particular line where they talk. There's a monologue or a soliloquy about the nature of war. It says the ultimate purpose of war is to serve itself, mm. and that's the mm. European Super League. Is this? It's the ultimate purpose of capital is to serve itself. 
You've no, given a lot of credit to the hunt for Red October there by describing it as a soliloquy. I think they'll be very flattered. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I like, I like to mix it up. Listen, we go high, we go low, we can't So, I think myself for something of a Shakespearean. So, so, Musa, let's let's yeah. sort of dig dig into that. Let's talk about like, how how is the European Super League this apotheosis of capital kind of mm. shielding itself from risk, even of the competition inherent in football? Right. So the way that it works is. Um, I try to break this down for listeners that aren't necessarily football fans. Uh, it's a bit like you have religion, right? And so a lot of people, mm-hmm. yeah, so churches all over the country and everyone worships um, and everyone puts their money into like the collection plate at the end of the service to like, you know, to give money to the local church and all the rest of it, right? What the European Super League does is basically equivalent of if overnight, if overnight it was decided by the five biggest churches all in the biggest, richest city, that you are not a proper Christian unless you only gave your money to the five biggest churches. Oh, and it turns out you're not, you're not a proper Christian unless you turn up to that church at least once every five years, even though the waiting list is obscene. And so it's basically like everyone woke up overnight and all of a sudden all the local churches, which are struggling to get by, basically had their budgets absolutely nuked. Mm. And all of a sudden these five mega churches, basically like everyone's got a private jet waiting on the runway, fully fueled. That's what the European Super League was like in terms of the kind of like, it was a heist. It was a smash and grab. It was a, it was a not a daylight robbery. It was a midnight robbery. Mm. Literally, this mm. thing was announced. So the, just to bring the context back to football. So mm. football has, in, in Europe alone, I mean, football has, I think, uh, just under 750 professional clubs, right? 750 professional clubs, which are the center of, in many ways, center of their communities, anywhere from Montpellier to Bratislava, like football clubs are the center of communities, not just match paying fat, not just match, match goers, those who are going to games, but like the, the amount of industries that football touches, you know, like the fishing industry obviously is a huge, you know, the fishing industry has been destroyed or decimated or destroyed by, by Brexit, right? It's, we're only seeing the impacts incrementally, but the, already we're seeing huge impacts, right? Um, the fishing industry, obviously as, as, as brutal as those losses have been compared to football, it's, it, it's much more self-contained, right? Mm-hmm. That, the amount of lives and industries, collateral industries and damage that the implosion of football would cost to a lot of these countries' economies would be huge. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just football, it's um, secondary industries, it's finance, it's also like you could just talk about intangibly the mental mm-hmm. health of communities that are held together by football being a place of coming together. Now, also just football is fun to watch. Yes, and now the way... That, what the European Super League tried to trying do. Trying to impress the blokes, Riley. The Look at him <laughs> out there trotting out, going like, I, for one, I love love watching a game of the old <laughs> footed ball, the old pigskin. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we'll get to that later. So what the, what the European Super League did, it saw how popular, so basically the 12 richest clubs in the world, well, 12 of the richest clubs in the world, saw how popular football was and thought, how can we basically grab as much of the pie as possible? So what they did was they quietly agreed between them, the 12 or 12 richest clubs in the world. They, they, they basically said, we have so much social media presence, so many fans, so much loyalty, that we're basically going to form a league all by ourselves. So we're going to cut out all the other kind of smaller clubs and we're just going to play each other because we're pretty much box office. We are basically going to make the Marvel Cinematic Universe of football. Nobody wants to see the minor superheroes. All they want to see is basically Thor. They want to see Iron Man. They, want to see, they don't want to see anyone else. And they basically did that. They're basically like, we're only going to play against each other. We're going to take all the TV revenue. Because basically, everyone's, it's basically a narcissistic project. 
everyone's obsessed watching these 12 biggest clubs. We're going to take those 12 clubs and we're going to broadcast in China, where there's going to be huge revenues, in India, in all these new economies for football, relative new economies, and screw the rest of the world. And that, that was the plan, basically. And it was going to be a closed shop, right? Like, yes, all of these clubs were shop. only going to play each other. Yes, with room for five. There were 12, 12 founding clubs. They were going to get three more in the door. And then they were going to have a rolling, just to kind of spice things up, have a bit of garnish, have five clubs come in every so often um, on a rolling starring. basis. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, so basically like a kind of like a Netflix series, basically like a Netflix series of like community or whatever. Or curb your enthusiasm, where you have a guest star. Yeah, every like couple of couple of episodes. Yeah. So is this actually the one thing that I didn't fully clock with this uh, when couldn't get to the bottom of was whether this league was going to be in addition to playing in the Premier League or La Liga or whatever, whether they were only going to play each other in this league. I think that was going to be one of the controversies, right? Because they were like, oh, we're still going to play these other leagues. That's going to be fine. And then the leagues that they were leaving said, wait, no, 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 we can ban you from doing that. Right. Because they were trying to leech what they're trying to do is a classic thing of like like if anyone anyone listening is to go to like some spoken word nights when promoters would turn up to a spoken word night and fly the entire event. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that gradually it'd start stealing your fan bases away. Right. That was the plan. That's how it worked, you know, the promoting scene, whatever. And yeah. mm-hmm. the same thing with football. We'll set up a parallel competition and over time drag all the eyeballs across to our league. And when we've got sufficient eyeballs, we'll just cut everyone loose. And it'll only so, be us. Yeah. So what um, What some of the owners have said about this, right? This is uh, Fiorentino Perez. says, it's pure statistics. Teenagers are more interested in playing video games than football these days, and we have to do something to well, bring them back. Partly because it's not on terrestrial yeah. TV anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, they're not interested. I wonder teenagers why. Teenagers aren't spending 90 quid a month on Sky Sports. Yeah. Interested. Like, no, Maybe teenagers, they should just learn to code. Teenagers absolutely will, will, will play a lot of FIFA, for instance, because that's mm-hmm. more affordable than uh, than buying fucking Sky Sports or whatever else to, to get yeah. matches. But also, so, they are watching it. They're probably just streaming it because they can't afford it. They're watching it. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't watching. download yeah. a football game. Come on, that's illegal. <laughs> so, uh, Perez went on to say, the Super League is not for the rich, but it's to save football. And if this continues, right. football will disappear, and by 2024, we would already be dead. This is the only way to save what everyone. What the fuck are they talking well, about? Here's the thing. We're going to get into the... Because the thing is, this makes sense within the logic of how the big clubs operate. And we're going to get into kind of how we got there and what that logic is. Yeah. And what I find so fascinating about this is that the logic of how the big clubs operate, it's basically the same as any crazy SoftBank funded startup where they need to compete in these like at these compete economically at these sort of stratospheric levels. But because they're they're all bidding one another up in cost, they're mm. all their profit margins stay razor thin. And so the only thing they can do is try to eliminate the risk of possibly being relegated because they need to make sure that the, you know, weird factoring loan that they're getting from like... It's worse than that. It's yeah. worse than that. Yeah. They're in horrifying levels of debt. Oh, yeah. Barcelona, yeah. Atletico Madrid, close to a billion in debt. Barcelona, about a billion in debt. Real Madrid, hundreds of millions in debt. Mm-hmm. So basically, the, the European Super League is the moonshot to pay off those debts. Yep. And the way mm-hmm. they were going to do it was basically like taking a loan from JP Morgan secured over 23 years, repayable 23 years. So they're basically going to take out a loan. It was basically, this is the thing, it's the kind of economics that, that business, supposed business geniuses scoff mm-hmm. at you. Like if you went and asked for a loan like that, 
as a regular member of the public from a bank, they'd laugh at you and be like, you're not savvy with your money. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, because they know that know, they like- can secure the debt against, they can securitize mm-hmm. the debt against um, the future earnings, the income, the revenues, the gate revenues in these clubs, mm-hmm. they, they gave the loan. That's how yeah. all big businesses work now, is the thing. Yeah. The, the, yeah. It's like the, they work like hedge funds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like what you do is you yeah. have a loan, right, with a lot of debt. You have a lot of debt. Well, you, to pay back those, those debts, you need to get other investors or take out other loans to pay back that. And then you just take out more loans to pay back that second loan. And you just keep doing that, I assume, forever. Yeah. Well, then you get a Russian criminal. That's what's yeah. at the bottom. It's generally, this is like guys who tell themselves that they're running tech companies rather than yes. guys who tell themselves that they're running football teams. Yes, mm. and, and guys that tell themselves that they're running tech companies, they're actually just running revolving credit facilities. Yeah, yeah. Really. Precisely. That's mm. so what it is. A thousand percent. They're running their security, basically securitization. I used to, I used to work in um, financial markets years ago. I was a lawyer in a previous life. I trained as a corporate lawyer. And it was funny because I used to work in capital markets and I remember like looking at all the numbers and going, but hang on a minute, like this company is activating my in prime sensors. <laughs> yeah. So this, uh, no, this isn't too, so I remember like, was it Warren Buffett said in was it early 2000s that um, these debt instruments are weapons of financial mass destruction, right? And so I was mm. looking at, the, I was working for this um, uh, law firm in London um, and I was training there. I remember thinking, wait a minute, this company is 700 million in debt. But it's only securing that debt with a loan. It's wrapping the loan in what it has a no, it's a, what is it called? Um, they wrap a bond for two million. Mm-hmm. I was like, but that can't mm-hmm. cover. You can't cover that. You can't insure seven hundred million with like a two million. It doesn't work. Like that's like yeah. that's like running on flimsy ankles, right? You're gonna like the ankles will break at some point. But oh no, no, Moose, you wrap it, repackage it, put it here. And I remember just thinking, but all that bad debt's gonna be packaged in the same place. And I remember like I drew all the diagrams and I was like, this doesn't work. And I was drawing these diagrams going, this is absolutely this doesn't work. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, we're I mean, gonna need you to stop drawing those diagrams, Moose. <laughs> yeah, please yeah. stop drawing. A lot of people pyramids. are very alarmed by the diagrams. We're <laughs> gonna need you to stop <laughs> oh, sorry, drawing I'm these so- pyramids everywhere. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, yeah, but I, I remember looking, I just remember thinking, and this is exactly what modern football's run on. It's basically mm. the same mm. thing. It's it's yeah. it's um it's uh what's the word? Musical chairs mm-hmm. in the hope that no one actually stops the music. If effectively at the highest level, fo- the, like, the real game of football is this shell game, yes. and there is just incidentally a football being kicked around that a lot of people are looking at. Yes. But re- the real game is being played in the boardroom with yes. the with the balance sheet, and we're going to talk about some of the crazy like loans and transfer deals as well as we get into mm. the latter half of the episode. But right, so let's also say this up front, right? This is a political problem, and it's born of. Not it is bore. It is a problem. Sort of it mirrors the sort of um you might say journey of sort of the British and European mm. economies over the twentieth century. It also of being is, really good and yeah, getting being, better, of being great and having wonderful foundations. Yeah. Um. It also is a political problem of massive inequality between football clubs, and it's a problem of mm. you know like like we talk about on on every, almost every episode of this podcast. The crazy shit happens because yield is hard to come by doing normal stuff. Yeah, because there's yeah. a tendency of the <laughs> yeah. race of profit to yeah. something something yeah yeah and you know i mean the other and the and the thing is right politically the super league has been very unpopular but if you look back uh to 2019 it was corbin who said that in football the professional game has become divided between the extremes of the very rich and very poor with clubs in bury and bolton facing collapse and he said that you know labor at the time would review the sort of fit and proper person test for club owners which basically makes sure that like someone coming in and running the club isn't going to like you know 
have it like an actual yeah, pyramid scheme noted, as opposed noted to hedge fund a, guy yeah. Mark yeah. Crimes is not going to yeah, be allowed exactly. to do to be a yeah. Tony yeah. anymore. Yeah, so. Yeah. So. Didn't, didn't, didn't make all their money from uh, guys who uh, killed themselves by padlocking themselves in a suitcase <laughs> and shooting themselves four times in the back of the head in uh, uh, fucking Surigut in the nineties. And so, oh, but wow, also, I'll look at the reference now. Yeah, they're very. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I'll see, I'll see um, reference. <laughs> that, that supporters trust he, he went on to say it would have a proper role to basically ensure that the professional game is properly run for its fans and clubs and that like we need like footers, football supporters trust of 50% of 50 plus 1% fan ownership and so on and so on and like this was a radical position at the time it was decried as like football communism and all all of this but <laughs> they then, love sticking communism yeah, on the end of the policy talk about that but yeah. then right like the broadband communism or sort of nhs discussions it turned out to be rather prescient and now it seems like even like like Starmer is not a million miles behind this because Starmer also partly is a huge football fan of one of the clubs under mm. question, Arsenal, mm. um, and even Boris Johnson. That's a shame. Boris Johnson, <laughs> not himself. Uh, do you think? Is there a football club you like, Milo? <laughs> I've just been. This is what's really annoying because I don't, I don't follow football. But my dad was so into football and was such a big Tottenham fan that I'm just programmed not to like people who support Arsenal. I don't actually care. Yet you podcast it just like, with me. It's like a Pavlovian response. <laughs> That's right. You know, you know my football. Do you know what I think? It's, it's funny you should mention this. Um, the reason why we're trying, like me and my, you know, Ryan, who I co-host Stadia with, and so many of us are trying to really hammer this European Super League point across is because it's it's so rarely you get a ready metaphor for corporate excess for greed um mm. for basically football being transformed to a tax haven overnight it's mm. so rare if you have a ready metaphor people you can go that's it and i didn't i think you know actually um i have to say like the greatest respect to um mark fisher mark fisher would talk about class consciousness being fleeting and this is a moment like it's so different difficult to get people to actually be like unified in their rage at particular things. It's almost like mm. this is um, a lightning rod. And, you know, what Corbyn said, I want to come back to the early 2000s where he made that, was it early 2000s he made that comment like, mm. this, you know, there's, there's many, if you ask how we got here, the European Super League is a bit like Trump. Mm. People are like looking mm. around nonplussed, oh, how has this happened? And disavowing all knowledge of like what led to it. But, but you don't get mm. to Trump without George W. Bush, right? Mm -hmm. You don't mm. get to George W. Bush. You don't get there without the kind of Samuel Alito torture memo. There are so many incremental steps that led to Trump. So many um, weakenings of checks and balances in the rule of law. And in relation to football, we got to the European Super League because in 2004, among many steps along the way, they had a test called the fit and proper persons test, which is basically like when you'd assess which owners could own a football club in, in the UK and the Premier League in the top division, and they allowed, among other people, Fax and Shinawatra to own a football club, even though he was under investigation for the extrajudicial execution of people that were dealing drugs. Mm. Like he was under investigation for extrajudicial execution. Um, because we had, are anti-drugs in the Premier League, and we do want people to know that. So, right. oh my goodness! And I said, so obviously, I, I had legal <laughs> training. Even then, the legal the legal framework for allowing this person to own a club was wild. Roman Abramovich was under investigation for all kinds of things as allowed to own a club. And like, you know, this was someone that wasn't necessarily vetted to the level that you'd vet other people in different fields. And many of these witnesses are no longer alive. So <laughs> perhaps well, uh, they will they reconsider conducting this. Conducting a series of interviews with people floating yeah. face down in the Yenisei. I, mean, there are a lot of, I will say this, there are a lot of conversations about how wealth was acquired so quickly in the late 90s that we all know about. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably wouldn't worry about it. Actually, a bit of, bit of, bit of cross-podcast content, content here. I was in Moscow in 96. Oh, wow. 
the energy that was, was the time to be there. Yeah, the, the energy was wild. The energy was wild. So they'd open up the McDonald's and go to McDonald's back then was like a kind, everyone was smoking like chimneys because Marlboro were like, let's pile into Russia and basically like cap, uh, capitalize this market. So cigarettes were super cheap and everyone was chain smoking. Uh, McDonald's was like a luxury. It was like a sort of, you know, going there was like a status thing, just being around there and hanging out. Mm. But one thing you did notice was there were a lot of like, a lot of dudes with like, you know, dark glasses and penthouses on the top floor of hotels and like, there was a killing across the road from the hotel in St. Petersburg where we went. Like two, it was, there, was like a, there was like a mob killing like two, two weeks before we got there. So there was a lot of stuff going on. That was, this was a murky time. And mm. a lot of the money coming into football was not vetted mm. from, from, yeah. lots of, from several parts of the world. And that is where a big part of it came. And football became, to some extent, it would always been like used as a kind of financial vehicle. Mm. But the explosion mm. of money that was unregulated moving through football you know, Corbyn was on it, like late 90s, early 2000s, it really just started to flow in. Mm-hmm. But then they actually, they resolved the problem of organised crime in Russia by making them the government. Yeah, that's right. Which is a very clever way of doing it. This is one of my problems with Corbyn, right, is that like, he's he's right so often, but the, the upshot of it is, so what? Because he has this peculiar gift for saying the right thing at the wrong time. And it just it's like... It's always the wrong time. It's always the wrong time if you're left wing. It's always the wrong time. Ed Miliband talked about predators and producers, predatory capitalism. He said it and they were like, and then the Financial Times said in 2015, the opinion piece, and they said, oh, he's, he's too preoccupied with inequality. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? We're endorsing uh, Cameron. And I remember tweeting this. I tweeted this a few months ago and I said, I remember when the Financial Times said that Ed Miliband was preoccupied with inequality. And everyone says Corbyn was too red. Well, you had Ed Miliband right there. Okay, if you really were that offended by Corbyn, you could have had Miliband, but you laughed at him and called him Red Ed, and you called his dad a Red, mm-hmm. or whatever, the Red Scare, and you had that anti-Semitic, all those anti-Semitic tropes, and here mm-hmm. we are. And Financial Times journalists were like, what? And I was like, one of the Bond journalists read it, and he was like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. Like, he couldn't believe his own paper had done that. I was like, yeah. You basically made out anybody who was even vaguely left of centre, mm-hmm. like, seemed like they were just trying to, like, bring the world down. And here we are. Mm-hmm. In the British press, <laughs> one of the other <laughs> things is right yeah. Yeah. is that um, as a result of all of that, right? Yeah. As a result of basically this problem not just going ignored for decades, but like any sort of any attempt to uh, take a look at it being like actively sort of, suppressed, yeah, yeah, actively suppressed means that now there's kind of there are you can see like there's this. Um, we're at the risk of developing, you know, good billionaire syndrome, where these, you know, coterie of like heirs, Midwestern Lutheran sociopaths or petrodollar royalty can position themselves as men of the people and say, "Oh, sorry, we, it's our mistake. We listen to you. We're 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 good billionaire owners, and so on and so on. We won't do the Super League. Let's just go back to how things were, yeah. which we all like. like. E- even and- even the other clubs, like the clubs that did not sign on to this, uh, getting the thing of having like saved football. Bayern and and yeah. BVB have saved football." And it's like, mm. well, no, it's just, this is, this is a fight between two different kinds of corruption. The kind of corruption so, where you, like, have people floating face down the river in Siberia and fucking Luigi De Paola and the UEFA officers. Well, the reason also that the key thing to understand in Germany, which is why Bayern and Dortmund would have found it much harder to join even if they'd wanted to. Fan ownership. Exactly. Fan ownership. And this is the kind of, these are the key checks and balances. And in Germany, there's a rule mm. where... Um, 51% of the club is owned by fans. And also, like, those fans, like, it's funny, actually, the Bayern Ultras, Bayern is like this the elite Germans, German aristocracy football club, but the mm. Bayern Munich Ultra is the kind of um, 
the fans who do the activism mm. have done some really amazing progressive work in anti-racism and also critiquing Bayern's involvement in Qatar, which obviously is responsible for so many human rights abuses in the lead up to next yes, his World Cup. So shout out to Bayern Ultras and Dortmund Ultras who really mobilised and were like, you know, they didn't want any part of this. Mm. Mm. Um, I was hoping you were going to mention Qatar too, because we were going to bring yeah. it up at some point. Actually, the Qatari royal uh, family are super fans of a lot of clubs, which is why they're allowed to own them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Fifty-one uh, percent is owned yeah. by the Qatari royal family, who well, are massive fans. They actually have the Class B fandom, and that allows them to actually have voting rights. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow, wow, yes, yes. Basically, right. I think we can talk a little bit about history, right? Because British football clubs have been yes. around since the Victorian times, and I think that situation is nicely summarized in a report written for Commonwealth on democratizing mm. football by friends of the show John T. Leibowitz and Joe Billsborough. Their report says, the broader contours of of British political economy over the last hundred years are clearly reflected in the contestation over who owns and benefits from football. And just as the neoliberal era has seen Britain's social contract disintegrate in the face of vast new inequalities, so too has football's easy alliance shattered. And that that, that uneasy alliance, as it's sort of talked about in the report... um, and also, uh, Musa, in some of the articles you sent me, uh, is basically one where, as British football clubs started having owners, you know, around or oh, just over a century ago, um, they went from the community organizations to companies to this, that, and the other, is essentially they would be owned by a sort of local industrial capitalist or whatever, like the guy who owns the mill might also own the football team or what have yeah, you. It's a works team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and those and the ability of the owner to influence what was happening with football was sort mm. of addressable with the democratic tools that people had available at the time. They were able mm. to say stuff like, well, this very popular team, there's something called Rule 34. Uh, this very popular oh, team. That no, that's, that's, not, that's not this thing. <laughs> no. um, or it's it's uh, it, where a very popular team that's making a lot of money has to like share out a lot of its income. The idea being you wouldn't get into a situation where there are a big six of football clubs who could like are untouchable by like, I don't know, mm. Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, yeah. And so and that's the pro Brighton yeah. and Hove Albion. <laughs> that's right. We want Brighton and Hove Albion in the oh. Premiership. Actually, no, I hate Brighton. Fuck Brighton. <laughs> another one! No, no, oh but, no, I don't hate the football team. I hate the town. <laughs> Why are you I like specifically the, oh, hate okay. the Where town. Are you recording? Where are you recording from? <laughs> <laughs> A secret bunker I, under Siberia. They'll put up in an unmarked, yeah, put up an unmarked vehicle. People are going to turn up. <laughs> That's right. So, right. Send me the coordinates. <laughs> and so th- that, that was kind of the situation where the amount that the owner was able to extract from the team was uh, limited by sort of law and the um, and, and the mm. control the owner had was counterbalanced by yeah. basically the capacity of fans to act together, of the of, mm. of laws to be passed and so on. It was basically a Fordist model of football clubs, yeah. right? And and yeah. um, what happened, and so uh, Jaunty and Joe go on, they say the privatization and deregulation of elite football in the early 90s, which we will talk about in detail, as well as the rapacious globalization of the game has tipped the scales decisively away from ordinary fans and towards the interest of cu- cruel club owners, petrodollar billionaires, and their friends in the media and politics, right? So what we get, right, is much like in the broader British economy, we have these things that exist in British towns that are that where we there is a competition between like labor and capital in them, right? And it's not that capitalists were better back then. It's just that they weren't as strong. They didn't have the ability yes. to move around. Like for example, if you own a factory, you can't just like move. You can't move your factory very easily until that's financialized. And 
you don't really own the factory. You own some pieces of paper that say you own the factory and you can trade those very easily. Right? It's the same thing with, with, the, with right. the football clubs. You don't really have to be from... In fact, you don't have to be from Liverpool at all to own the Liverpool club. You can just be someone who's like, I invest in sports teams. Here's the sports team that I've bought. Or to support Liverpool. I yeah. found something I found increasingly <laughs> weird. I remember this was something my dad used to remark on a lot as someone who was born in 1943 in Tottenham and supported Tottenham and used to go to Tottenham as a kid for like, I don't know, like 10p or whatever the fuck it cost. Um, how much it like football, it, even within Britain, became like so decentralized and like people, like there was very little connection between like local people and a football club anymore. And, such, and then recently for a work thing, I had to go to a Liverpool game which I was not remotely interested in at all. And I was struck by the fact that... Oh, interesting. Another football team you don't like. <laughs> no, it's not, even though I dislike the football team... How long did it take to get Liverpool, there? Liverpool. Um, about yeah. three and a half hours in the car. Um, great. So you're within three and a half... Oh, okay, great. <laughs> you're, drawing, you're drawing circles on it. You're doing your diagrams yeah, turn, again. Turn, uh, turn your location yeah. on. Um, <laughs> because Moose just wants to talk and, to you. And, uh, yeah, Roman Abramovich is paying you. Um, and I was struck by the fact that no one... I was there working for some Ukrainian guys, which I know, <laughs> which to people again. who know me, sounds very unlikely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and literally no one in the, I don't know, like 20 or 30 people immediately around us was like... I don't even think like living in Britain. It was all like people who'd like flown in for the game, mm-hmm. um, which was like mad to me. If you want a case of people having genuine local loyalty to their football club uh, and has not quite been corporatized, I invite all of you to come to Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> Are you in Glasgow? Oh, mm. wow. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. now you know where Milo yeah, isn't, which is Glasgow. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. But how so far you, away am there, I, Musa? How far? There, <laughs> there, there is true. an alternative yeah. to corporatization, and that is less corporatization and sectarianism. Yeah, that's right. If you, yeah. Mm. yeah. So God, but that's yeah. another story. But I, I rudely interrupted. Sorry, I interrupted. I interrupted your story about French Liverpool. Oh, sorry. My point was simply that I was really struck by like how few scousers there were at this Liverpool mm-hmm. game. Um, just like everyone around, like I was chatting to some people next to me who'd flown in from Malaysia to go to a Liverpool game, and I was just like, "Why? <laughs> like, what is wrong with you?" Well, because I mean, because it's uh, it, well, because a lot of the, the case they because had a of, season ticket because and of, they lived in Malaysia <laughs> because of what happened in 1992. Uh, Ian Miles Strong. Yeah. <laughs> so um, no, he'd, he'd have a season ticket to like an American no, he never football team. Malaysia. So, uh, but but uh, all in all, right. Before, to, in 1992, right, this tension betw- uh, betw- of, in the football club between a voluntary association where the game of football is played competitively because people enjoy to play and watch football, mm. and a company that has to... Thank you for yeah, that description yeah, of football, well, Robot Riley. But, right, but the company that exists almost despite those things, right, mm. that tension was upset in 1992. And so I want to turn back to our guest, Musa. What happened in 1992... That upset that balance and laid this laid the groundwork for where we are now. So okay, so um, and actually, just to say about about the kind of the, the composition of fans at Liverpool. I mean, I'm a bit of a romantic. I quite like the idea that you've got fans that come mm. from all over the world to support because it's a bit like for a lot of them, it's like pilgrimage. Mm. Like it's like going to Mecca for some of these people. Like being in the stadium just for once. Yeah, it's like about the same amount of oil um, money involved. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, well actually, you, you're going to get me in trouble. But um, what I will say is um. In what happened in 1992, so for the football, there are four divisions of professional football where you can get paid full time. So basically, professional football is like defined, I suppose, as any football club where you can earn a full-time wage playing for the yeah. club, right? So there are four divisions um, in England 
composed of 92 clubs in total, which basically can pay, can afford to pay their players full time. So that's a, in 1992, those TV revenues, TV revenues, so basically like whenever football was on TV, the revenues were divided between those four leagues, like equally. Mm-hmm. And the top clubs were basically, they, the top clubs in the top division, there were like sort of 20 clubs, well, in the top division of 20 clubs, and they basically were like, hang on a minute, we basically get the majority of the viewing figures. People aren't tuning in to watch that club in the North of England, that club down in the South East. They're, they're coming to watch us. We are the biggest 20 clubs. We should get the lion's share of the money. So they formed the Premier League. Um, they basically uh, partnered with Sky, and Sky basically sold subscriptions, satellite TV subscriptions, to watch those top 20 clubs. And the amount of money that poured into the game with that result was huge mm. because the, Sky was smart. They made a bet. They were like, there's a lot of viewers out there. There are millions of viewers out in the world who will pay to watch us and us alone, or these top 20 clubs alone, and they'll pay like a monthly subscription for it. It was mm. revolutionary. And the amount of money that poured into football after that was just huge. Like the wages that people could afford, mm. the clubs could afford was huge. They could afford to have globalized the town. They could afford to bring players from all over the world. And as they brought players from all over the world, they attracted fans from all over the world. And so you saw this kind of supercharged globalization of the game and the globalization of fandom to a scale you hadn't seen before where people are flying in because they feel like they've got like a, they're stakeholders mm. now, right? You've got a subscription in Malaysia to watch this club. You get a kinship and all of a sudden you've got a season ticket, you know, if you're from that economic bracket, which is obviously like the 0.1%. Mm. And so almost football went overnight in a sense of being community owned, a local community owned to being global mm. community owned, right? And now, of course, the European Super League is kind of cutting up the community and just being globally owned. Yeah. And that's the apotheosis of capitalism. First time ever in 1992, in people in Malaysia started saying, have you heard of this Teddy Sheringham guy? <laughs> we've got to go, go and see it. That's right. And, and as, as Lenin wrote, the European Super League is the highest stage of capitalism. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Just after 92, in 94, and this is from an article from David Kahn, um, that's when you see the signings of foreign superstars. So uh, this was German World Cup winning striker Jurgen Klinsmann by the Spurs. Uh, Arsenal bought Dennis Bergkamp and Middlesbrough uh, recruited a Brazilian Juninho. And the idea was, right... That football and football at this point, Khan goes on. No one was saying it sold its soul. If anything, it had been revitalized from the sort of a bit of damp and decay that had been plaguing the game, sort of a, a poor reputation somewhat. It had become almost gentrified, and everyone thought this was great. Uh, ticket prices went up just a little bit. Uh, wages were like we were raising an eyebrow, but it was you know nothing like you know Neymar or whatever today. But there was little, and, and clubs weren't really in much debt. However. Uh, looking back on this, sort of Khan put this uh, to uh, Graham Kelly, the uh, Football Association chief executive who backed the breakaway. He told me forlornly, quote, we were guilty of a tremendous collective lack of vision. And it is in this period that football makes that transformation where it becomes not just a business, but it becomes just like every other business, which is to enrich, you know, absentee owners uh, who see it as a box to generate returns. It's just a black box. It could be a football team. It could be a chip manufacturer. It could be a farm. It doesn't matter just so long as it produces the yield. What I do find interesting, though, about it is that 
football it, it embodies all of those like ills of capitalism but it doesn't embody a lot of the profits because these clubs they 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 have huge turnovers but they don't really actually make much money like most of these billionaires who buy clubs they don't really make money out of it they kind of do it as like a vanity i don't know yeah, but, but i don't know capitalism why capitalism is but... a, is, a, is about power and control yeah. and the desire to dominate and Ultimately, but if it's... they bought any other business, they would expect yeah. to make money out of it. But in football, they're just kind of like, we're going to lose money, but it'll be cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, look, Abramovich, for example, is an interesting example because he actually didn't give Chelsea that money. It was a loan. It's a loan. Right. Okay. He loaned Chelsea yeah. hundreds of millions. So that's, that's actually like, and, you know, it's a place if you want to keep your money mm. safe and if you want to conduct a sport washing project, if you want to build the profile of a nation, um, so you look at the, the purchase of Paris Saint Germain by, by Qatar in that context, you're trying to build a global project like Project Qatar. Like Qatar mm. went through that phase of like intervening in the conflict in Syria, right? And it was trying to sort of project soft power. Mm. Um, you know, Qatar really like as part of this kind of expansionist uh, soft power policy was let's buy a football club. It doesn't really matter what the returns are. Um, same for Abu Dhabi as well. Like Project Abu Dhabi, like. Um, this was the same kind of time people started calling football clubs projects. Projects was basically like a euphemism for profit's not a priority, other mm. things are. Prestige is in, a priority. In many, because yeah. it's a marketing department or a PR department doesn't make you money, but it's an important balance sheet line item that you have to have. Yeah, yeah. And it's in this case, it's, it's quite similar. And what, I, and what I find interesting about this is the way in which football clubs become kind of like everything else. They become mm. kind of not mm. dissimilar from any other business. Maybe that's supposed to be a loss leader or they're supposed to perform some other function, but that is very disconnected from the playing of a game of football that people enjoy. And this is actually where only I... Capitalism, this is, only finance capitalism yeah. reduces football to a soup-like homogenous in under 30 seconds. <laughs> so this is where I brought in my, Will my, it blend? My, my Mark Fisher quote, which is simply the phrase that he used in an essay... Um, referring to the impasses of the flatlands of capital endless repetitions because this is essentially what is happening it is just entering into a domain and repeating itself over and over and over again i hate entering into a domain <laughs> so i will never enter now a domain let's, let's meet a football club that's identical with a with some holding companies right we know roman abramovich owns chelsea we know sheik mansour owns man city but who are some of the others mm. so let's meet some of these uh these colorful characters i'm particularly interested in the americans let's meet dave crimes <laughs> well um <laughs> arsenal's uh stan cranky is that how you pronounce it musa <laughs> That would have been better yeah. if it was Stan Cranky. Yeah, Stan Cranky. I mean, the baseball crank. <laughs> yeah, we're going to call him uh, Stan Cranky, who was a, an American commercial landlord who married a Walmart heiress he met on a skiing holiday and then um, started up a company called THF Realty, THF standing for To Have Fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That sounds absolutely cursed. <laughs> Be yourself and have fun what, with it. What he does is it basically it just develops what are now dead malls. So he's a dead mall oh, billionaire. Oh, what does he put in the malls? Well, nothing anymore. Does he use them to have to, fun? Uh, he uses fun. Hunt game of some kind. <laughs> a dangerous game, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Stan is also referred to as Silent Stan because he uh, doesn't say much and he doesn't care about football at all <laughs> because he never speaks. Yeah. Um, he's like Vinnie Jones's character in Gone in sixty yeah. seconds. So, uh, but essentially, yeah. this is yeah. He's uh, a landlord who does like yeah malls and com and like out of town office buildings, most of which are connected with WalMarts. He might be American, but that's very British. So yeah. I kind of think he should own a British football. <laughs> club uh liverpool's john henry was a commodity trader who got rich on soybeans and then just 
And plus, he raced that steam train one <laughs> That's time. That's right. Yeah. I don't like it when people have two first names. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I'm taking a stance on that. No. But he used. But I think it's also funny. He's just a guy who knows really. He's so good at trading soybean futures that he's now a billionaire. <laughs> This is that's literally how we got rich. Yeah, the soy guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's the problem. I think that the problem, the problem with a lot of this stuff is it's just. And that sounds terrible, but like, I remember looking at the corporate world and going, "How do people do this for fifteen hours a day?" Like, it's this seems really, really boring. I'd have friends that work in finance. We go for like, you know, you go for dinner, like, you know, a steakhouse or whatever. Yeah. Back when I could actually afford such mm-hmm. things. Uh, now I'm being ridiculous. And um, you'd be like, they they start and they would always talk about finance, and you're like, and they could just they just they'd be like five of us at the table and three of them would start talking about finance and they'd be really into it and they'd be like, have you just created a derivative of our conversation? <laughs> You've kind of just... Kind of <laughs> That's right. <laughs> They're like, Musa, how many beans have you bought today? Yeah. Or That's potential how- future beans. Yeah. Oh, well, how many beans will you buy in a month? And what's yeah. the spot price of this uh, steak on this menu? No, so yeah. He's, yeah, he's just a beans guy. How many... Uh, what options on what beans and, have you and, But he just used acquired. them, much like Stan, John Henry just used the money to start buying sports teams because he was like, well, I'm super rich right now. What's I, really expensive? I guess I'll just buy a bunch of sports teams and then, like, they're mine. Mm. And who cares that, like, St. Louis doesn't get a football team anymore? St. Louis in America doesn't get a football, an American football team anymore. I like them, and I'd like them to go over to Los Angeles. That's what's wild about American sport, is that people just buy teams and then just move them. Yeah, that's why the LA Lakers are Lakers. There aren't a lot of lakes in LA. No, famously, apart yeah. from Silver Lake, and that's not a lake. Minneapolis, yeah. right? Were they Minneapolis uh, before? Utah They're, Jazz? Ja- Utah, yeah. like Salt, uh, uh, Salt Lake City? Not a good jazz city. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a great name for a band, actually, Utah Jazz. If there was a band called Utah Jazz that basically made, like, shoegaze. Mm, yeah. Jazz Mormons. I'd go, I'd go and see that band. What I think is the most interesting one, though, is uh, Malcolm Glazer. And again, if you want to talk about um, billionaire owners not actually using their billions on the team, just using their access to capital and like like fin- the resources of financialization to just take something without putting anything into it, Glazer is a perfect example. Mm. So he's an American billionaire who bought Man U. And also, by the way, really interesting, also bought Zapata Petroleum, an unprofitable fake CIA cutout that was sitting at the crux <laughs> of the Harriman Bush Dallas Walker like friend group that was the origins of the CIA. Zapata Petroleum, very American NATSEC connected. Now- Gentlemen, we are sitting in the center, the direct nah. center of the football industry. They will have you believe that a yeah. magic football, the US <laughs> government contends that this okay. man, Teddy Sheringham, okay. was able with a magic foot. The one to, guy uh, you know. Rebound uh-huh. a football. Okay. I just think he's the funniest footballer <laughs> okay. I can name. So basically, Him or maybe right. Darren Bent. <laughs> so Owen Ricketts, that's a good yeah. one. So basically, right, like, let's just say with Zapata Petroleum, yeah. it deserves like, a, a lot Bobby more of an Zamora. investigation. But Zapata Petroleum, let's just say, if you could identify a payment from Zapata Petroleum to yeah. Permindex, the JFK assassination is solved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I don't know what he was doing owning it. Uh, so anyway, the Glazer takeover of Man U cool stuff. Cool guy um, stuff. was interesting, right? He took out basically an enormous amount of debt. Uh, mm. And bought a lot of, I uh, bought just bought tons and tons of shares in Man U, and then just said, okay, yeah. well, Man U, Manchester United, I've taken out all this debt, but I'm your owner, your debt now. And then he created two classes of shares, uh, a class A share that the um, that the Rube is allowed to own that has all the debt against it, and then class hey, B shares, uh, which only the Glazers now his kids is. Um, uh, idiot children are allowed to own, which has all voting rights and no, de- and is senior to the debt, no debt attached to it. So basically, Manchester United, as a result of like 
in exchange for this guy getting to this one American guy getting to own and control everything that it does at the expense of of every, all the fans getting to jack up the prices to pay like 62 million pounds a year in pure interest alone on this debt but Manchester United gets nothing it basically is now just a machine to pay interest and let uh, the glazer the glazer uh, children the, the glazer fail sons be like we own a football team and that's yeah, he's all made it into a savings account <laughs> That's more or less right. He's made it into a kid's first savings account. But that's how elite <laughs> like football clubs charge huge sums of money for everything. And that's why they're also in such a precarious financial position because they need to and that's why they need to like make sure they never get relegated because they have these enormous interest payments to make every year because some guy will just come in and be like you're a billion pounds in debt now, but in exchange I own you. Is that about a fair summation, Mr. Well, the grim, the grim thing I think about. Um, I mean, the, the most grim thing about the Glazer family is they basically. Um, I think Ed Glazer, the brother of Joel, son of a Malcolm, organised the fundraiser of the re-election of Donald Trump, um, mm. and I've never been able to see past that. To be honest, uh, among mm. other things, um, I just feel like it's really sad because you know I support Manchester United. So you're you're seeing your club basically being owned, being used as as a, not a debt instrument, but basically, yeah, like a sort of. A bank account. Yeah, well, some, mm. Something that um, you can put debt against because the bank yeah. and the owners know that your emotional... Att- I mean, just it's almost like the same kind of logic, right? As saying, well, teachers will buy their own supplies because they have this emotional attachment that will make them pay for supp- school supplies for their kids. It's like church. Yeah. It's like church. Everyone, mm. you're, you know people yeah. will turn up. It's like the Vatican. You know that people will always revere the Vatican. Mm. And so you... you the sad thing about Malcolm Glazer, obviously the late, uh, and, and the Glazer family, what they've done to Manchester United, is basically like they've had sporting success. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they won the Super Bowl. So there's an element of like, you know, funding some kind of success or bring some kind of joy. But it's like, do you even, I'm just always fascinated by people who can preside over an institution, own an institution, where they know that they are loathed, mm. utterly loathed by the vast majority of people who revere that institution. And yet they can they can proceed. I'm just fascinated in the psychological makeup of, you know, these owners, Stan Kroenke, Thaksin Shinawatra, where they know that they're loathed, mm. but still proceed regardless. I just don't. I don't know how well, you can get. I out think of they're quite used to being loathed. <laughs> I think that's my analysis of them. <laughs> no, but but but, I, but yeah, but I don't. But here's the thing: I don't get. I don't get how. I will never understand, and I probably shouldn't. How a human being or human can absorb that level of resentment? Well, it's alienation. Uh, realistically yeah. right yeah it's as that, a podcaster yeah. I, <laughs> well no so it's I, I think the answer right is is alienation it's that mm. the whole point of of these kinds of like arm's length models of ownership and having fans as customers all this stuff it's that all of these things are mediated by transactions the mm. any kind of uh, any other kind of relationship that is not mediated by a transaction is one that we've sort of again over the last 40 years of like consent manufacturing or whatever mm. have basically managed to winnow out of the human experience, which means that, well, it doesn't matter that I have no connection to Liverpool or Arsenal or whatever. Mm-hmm. I have performed the transaction that means it's mine and you are now my customer. Yeah, I bought I bought the shirt, yeah. the, the, the 80 pound shirt. Yeah. And that mean, mm-hmm. but it also means, right, that the you have as many it means that you have as many rights as a as a fan, as a customer. Uh, I can go into Walmart and you know be like uh, you know I'm, I'm or Aldi or whatever and you know say I don't particularly like that you're using sweatshops and they can be like, okay I'm fucking buy something else yeah somewhere. I'm a Walmart ultra yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you know, do you know it's actually what oh gosh you know it's interesting about this but I think actually funnily enough the um 
that that severance of, from reality via the mediation of transactions is actually what brought the European Super League down because these owners were so detached from reality they thought the scheme would work. They didn't consult the people that bring it into effect. They didn't consult the players, the athletes who'd be performing for these clubs. They didn't consult the managers. Um, they basically were like a bunch of people and their financial advisors sitting in rooms across the world, either on yachts or in their sort of private, you know, <laughs> corporate lairs. Hermetically sealed red clear. Like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but, no, but actually this is the fascinating thing about like capitalism being untethered mm. from the market. Like mm. if, you're, if you're untethered, by all means, like, you know, if you're capitalist, try and untether yourself from the market, but they untethered themselves from reality to such a point where the mm-hmm. plan failed. Well, Does that make sense? Of they just, course. They, had, they, were, they, had, they were so unaware because if you're going to leverage the emotion of people, mm. you've got to do it in a way, that you've got to exploit people in a way they're still going to mm. turn up. Now, you exploit people through religion. Mega churches are still full because they've worked our way to give people a return on their investment. Mm. Like ultimately, yeah, we're going to, I'm going to fly my private jet and own a mega church but the congregation is still going to be full. Mm. You, at some level, you can't display a contempt so naked for the member of the congregation, they won't mm. turn up. Mm. And what the Super League basically did was they filled, they filled the pews with manure. Mm. Mm. And even the most fanatical supporter of the megachurch is not going to sit down in a pew filled with manure. I should try having podcast listeners, mate. <laughs> well, I think what, what really happened, oh hap- I mean, you think what happened as well here, right? Is that there wasn't forty years? People used to feel like this about like unions and like worker mm. organizations as well, right? But then those were broken, yeah. and there was forty years of consent manufacturing, if not more, basically suggesting there is no alternative to what we have now, and actually you love it, yes. you know. Mm. And the thing is, yes, there yes. was not forty years of of consent manufacturing in that way for football. Bingo, yeah, bingo. And there was there was not forty years of con- of uh, consent manufacturing for the yep. European Super League. Mm. They didn't do the work. And there's an amazing, uh, there's an amazing writer, Grace Robertson, who has a brilliant um, newsletter. You can find Grace on Twitter, at, at Grace on Football, who wrote a superb analysis of why the European Super mm. League failed. Mm. And Grace's argument is based that they didn't, they didn't manufacture mm. the consent. Mm. They didn't work with the PR companies. And I think that they got lucky in football because frankly, if they'd basically got like, if they'd thrown money at the right people, mm months in advance they started building the consent through the arguments they started getting let's say sovereign wealth fund on board and the capital had been there not as a loan but as an investment this mm. could have looked mm. quite different because that's what i found really remarkable about it was how how rapidly it went from like check out this cool thing we're gonna do to like oh fuck oh shit <laughs> um like they announced yes. it pretty much instantly like everyone was just like this is the worst fucking thing I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Tottenham sacked Jose Mourinho because he wouldn't take the players out on the training ground because of it. And then by the next day, the whole thing was like, okay, we're not doing it anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's because they're, they tried to change the institution without like assuming that they would that this institution would react like every other institution that this has happened to in Britain or America or Europe or whatever for the last 40, 50, 60 years, where there is that power and that consent, that, that long period of there is no alternative. That means that you can just take something away from people and they'll thank you for it because they believe it's necessary. It didn't happen. Yeah, it's called being English. Yeah, that's right. And, um, well, yeah, but I think this is why this is so powerful, the European Super League, because one of the few times where the relentless march of increasing expense and exclusivity has actually been stopped. Mm, mm. Like, think about how many losses 
people on the side of unions have taken and how many losses people who are against like rent seeking have like taken. Mm-hmm. Like it's so, you know, so many of us have lost, you know, we lost the referendum, we lost this election, that election, so many losses that anyone vaguely progressive has taken. And this is like a moment where you're like, actually, it was, you know, that there were various corporate interests that were against the European Super League, but actually a lot of the backlash was led by ordinary mm-hmm. fans, mm-hmm. was led by players who grew up in working class backgrounds, you know, who were like, we're not standing for this. Mm. That is extremely powerful. A lot of people are like, oh, it's just football. I was like, I get why people are like turned off by it. I'm not expecting people to get behind it. I'm just saying that this is actually a really useful rallying point, which a lot of organizers, I think, could usefully engage mm. with. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. And it, it's one of these things where, like, like you said earlier, Musa, right? Like the, like politics doesn't happen all the time. And these opportunities sort of don't em- so rare, so yeah. rare. Like people going, why can't you get people excited about tax savings? Well, we tried with the Panama Papers, but it was yeah. too abstract. Everyone's like, well, what do we get behind? People are shuffling money offshore. Mm. It's not sexy. I was like, well, imagine like your favorite footballer is never going to play in your town again. Your favorite footballer who plays for the other team is never going to come to your town again. Mm. It's absolutely. That's a big, so, it's so tangible. And this is the thing. This is a tangible moment of we're not standing for this. This is what else we want. While we're here, we're going to make them some demands on how things can get better. It's one of the few times in life where people are going to be like, there is an alternative. And one of the mm-hmm. things I think it's also important to like press is that the alternative isn't just what it was before with the premiership and as everything was, because that was incredibly... The reason they did the European Super League is because what was happening before wasn't sustainable. Yeah, it wasn't the plucky Premiership and Champions League <laughs> to down on their luck unmoneyed institutions, which... Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, <laughs> Luigi De Paola requires his bribes, all right? <laughs> oh my God, like the, the whole FIFA... I mean, FIFA have the approach to corruption that uh, the parachute regiment have to war crimes, which is we do it and it's good. Like, the, I remember when uh, the whole Qatar World Cup thing was going on and basically the FA made this huge complaint about how the whole thing had been obviously done on bribes and that no one had actually voted for Qatar to have the World Cup. And, and the, the president of FIFA at the time said, like, it's quite rude of you to say this. <laughs> but he was basically like, we did it, but would you mind shutting up about it? It was weird that that guy's name was Yeeps van der Bribes. <laughs> so here's the thing, right? I want, in, the, in, the, in the final analysis, right, of... Um, Here's why we can't just go back to how it was. Mm. I'm going to talk about a few a few of the bits of strangeness that might be very yeah. familiar to a TF listener that have been happening mm. in um, various uh, football teams around Europe. One Australian man. Yes. No. Yep. No. <laughs> yes. Please That's let right. it be the insurance guy. <laughs> no, I'm afraid it's um it, oh, it's not him. I've written all this insurance for a European Super League <laughs> and borrowed eight trillion dollars. <laughs> uh, Atletico Madrid was so on the hunt for new capital that in September 2017 he met the the owner of the team met with. Representatives of Greensill Capital. Yes. <laughs> they went for tapas with Lex and David Cameron. <laughs> right. To discuss a potential loan of 76 million euros. As collateral, Greensill wanted um, uh, Atletico's outfitter Nike to sign over payments from its sponsoring contract, which had just been a- a- extended. And that is called invoice factoring. It's yeah. one step from reverse factoring. <laughs> We very nearly had our favorite form of uh, it's not debt financing happening in the football show, which I totally didn't expect. Amazing. Very funny that invoice it's factoring is coming. It's all the way down. 
Because and, and basically, mm. football clubs now, because of this like arms race that happened after '92, where like you realize that in order to keep winning and turning those profits, you need to like be hiring these superstar players. You need to pay increasingly massive sums of money. A football club just needs money now, and they can pay it away later because mm. they know they have these these streams of income from like TV deals and, and ticket buying and stuff. They don't get big chunks of money all at once or not huge ones. It all comes over time. And so if there is a revenue stream, a football team will sell that revenue stream to a bank, an unscrupulous financial institution, or in the case of Greensill, one Australian man. Cool. Um, and I think that uh, now, Musa, we'll you said then sell it to several Swiss men. The uh, the team the, the 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 moment that like almost made this inevitable wasn't it, it was ninety two might be the ultimate cause, but the proximate cause was the Neymar Junior trade. Yeah, so um, Neymar, um, one of the world's best footballs, one of the best footballs of his generation, um, was bought by Barcelona, uh, I think in two thousand fourteen. But from Santos, and we saw the beginning of it there. So he was bought uh, for about, I think, 70 million, mm. but only about 20 million that actually went to the Brazilian club Santos. The other 50 went to different intermediaries. I think 2 million went to a marketing fee. I mean, it's just bizarre. Like, this money went in all these different pockets. So Neymar goes to Barcelona, becomes arguably well, one of the top three footballers in the world. Barcelona won a load of titles with him there. And then he moves to Paris Saint-Germain for a world record fee of 222 million Mm -hmm. euros. All hell breaks loose because basically the way it worked was Barcelona said, Neymar's so valuable to us that he he can't leave. So we'll basically put a clause in his contract that says, unless someone pays this amount of money, 220 million euros, he can't leave. And Barcelona were like, no one's going to pay that. It was just like a fuck off price, basically. Right, right. Well, well then... Paris Saint-Germain came in with the kind of with that kind of money and put the money down and paid it probably in cash actually knowing that <laughs> suitcases um, full of and Neymar goes to uh, Paris Saint-Germain and that that sum of money just distorts the entire market it just distorts the entire I'm sure there's some economic analysis of what that rapid injection of cash does to any system but it just completely overloaded it was like just pumping cholesterol into your veins mm-hmm. Um, the heart of football's transfer system just put out because all of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden, basically Barcelona walking around with all this money and everyone's like, okay, you can afford really expensive footballers now and all the transfer prices across Europe just got jacked up as a result and, of that. And, as a, and what happens, right, is as in this system, as soon as one person pays something for something, then everyone else has to match it, right? Mm. So yes. as soon as if you get a big if basically if a, if a bank or a rich backer will give you enough money to beat the previous record, that's the new price for everything. And that money has to yes. come from some kind mm. of productive somewhere, somehow. And a lot of the people who are paying the interest rates, who are paying the um, who are paying the, the, the interest rates on that debt, who are paying for the stuff itself, who are paying the crazy agent fees and marketing fees and stuff. It's people who are in, having to buy increasingly expensive sky packages. It's people who are having to buy increasingly expensive tickets and so on and so on. But that's also why all the clubs, even though they're like engaging in these mega transactions and are these like global, insti- untouchable global institutions, are also constantly on the verge of bankruptcy because Everything is just ratcheting up in price more and more and more and more. Mm. It's one of these, uh, you might call it a contradiction. Yeah. It's the hyper gentrification yeah. of football. Why does this, 
Why does this remind me of uh, funding rounds for startups? Uh, interesting. It's kind of the SoftBank model where you can just hmm. buy victory by pumping a bunch of money into it. Yeah. And suddenly- It's worth that because well, I just paid that for here, it. Here's an example of exactly that happening, which is, uh, we talked about this yesterday, Musa, which is the swap of uh, Arthur Mello and Miralem uh, Panic, where nobody in, in Barcelona or Juventus, no, the fans, the coaching staff, no one wanted to make that trade. It was bad. Mm. For, it was bad for both teams, but in terms of balance sheets, it gave the opportunity for both clubs to basically value their own assets that they would trade to one another. And so they basically just said, "I reckon he's worth sixty million. I reckon he's worth seventy-two million. All right, pay me twelve million. I'll send him over. You send him over." And all of a sudden, both, even though only twelve million changed hands, both clubs were able to just write down their new valuations of their assets mm. because they were like. We both reckon that these players are just worth this arbitrary number, and that's how much they're worth. And yeah. then that's how much money they have, effectively, right? Wild. Exactly. It's exactly perfect described. It's mm. absolutely wild. And it's basically just like cowboy mm. accounting. And we all know what happens just before cowboy accounting historically, mm. back to the South Sea mm. bubble. Football we index. We all know what happens. Mm. When, clowns, yeah, when clowns start making money, bad things happen. I remember like when, you know, I was, uh, when the financial crash happened, I was talking to a friend, and he said... Um, Two years before the financial crash in 08, a load of those um, private equity firms sold up their sold up their assets and Beige just like retired to the Hamptons and just sat mm. there. They just been they've been sitting in the Hamptons for two years waiting for the crash. Mm. And they're gonna come, they're gonna swoop back in and scoop up all the distressed debt. It's horrible just watching it all play out. When when you see the money start leaving, when you see like the smart money, when you see the early money leaving the economy. You're like, here comes the crash. And the scary thing is, the really scary thing is, and we haven't talked about this in the podcast, the broader context of the economic crash, that is going to hit Europe. That is overdue. Mm -hmm. that, that is what terrifies me. We haven't even seen what the economic crash is going to do to Europe. Not the pandemic, but the actual crash is just due cyclically. Mm -hmm. That frightens me so much because so many, of the lessons weren't, so many of the lessons weren't learned from the last crash. So many of the checks and balances haven't been restored. Mm -hmm. I, you know, does of that make sense? And I'm really frightened by Yeah, I'm, I'm so frightened by that. And I mean, even even just sort of to bring it bring it sort of narrowly focused on on football, when some when when that earthquake comes, these houses of cards won't be ready. Mm. And so I think well, you can no, see no. the Europeans in the context of, of just moment to moment, the European Super League looks like high handed captains of industry arrogantly sort of scooping up their game and saying it's mine now it's closed. And that's mm. partly what it was. But also, it was very, very scared business owners realizing the shaky foundations upon which they stood. It was both of those mm. things. The financial crash is going to be so interesting and not in a good way in terms of what it's going to take out mm -hmm. because everything that isn't lashed to something is going to get blown away mm -hmm. in the hurricane. And there are going to be some pretty, I think, surprising casualties and frightening casualties. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm just amazed the fact that we haven't begun a conversation about tax havens mm -hmm. yet in relation to football mm -hmm. because everyone talks about money in the system like, the money's right there. The money is sitting offshore. Everyone knows where it is. But to go after it, to go after those deep pockets, you know, to really crack down on that, because we're, we're just dancing around the issue, really, mm. of where, you know, we talked about shell companies before. All these big governments are dancing around the issue of tax havens because they know, Boris Johnson can talk all we like about protecting the Premier League. He's saying that really because actually, now the UK is at the European Union, the Premier League is such a like marquee product. Yeah. 
It's one of the few marquee products that Britain and specifically England still has in its arsenal. And the European Super League would have destroyed that. What Boris Johnson's not going to do is go the further step and be like, actually, we need to go after the money that's been, the tax that's basically been illegally, has been evaded, that's sitting offshore. He won't go after that because too many of his friends have got money there. Yeah, and also that's, that's a great way to, to go. It's a great way to throw yourself off your balcony two or three times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. He was so suicidal, he jumped off his balcony, climbed back up, and then jumped off again. Tragic. Very greasy staircase yeah, yeah. Very on the way staircase. up. Well, that's a separate thing that I do a lot. The thing I do a lot of is I look a lot at what's happening with um, you know, these poor investigative journalists all across the world just being whacked over the last few years. You know, Malta, Slovakia, just to name those two countries, where people just dig a bit too deep in the wrong places. And that actually is... We haven't talked about like organised no. crime without football, really, but like that is a whole other level. Well, Trained I, Australian assassins are coming for Trash Future right <laughs> that's now. That's right. Well, Guys <laughs> armed with boomerangs. I'm just a guest. Listen, if you want to come for yeah. anyone, I'm just I'm just a guest. This yeah. podcast. I'm not affiliated. <laughs> that's right. All they know is well, we're about three and a half hours drive from Liverpool. They can't track well, us down. Exactly. Well, uh, thank you, Musa. Now as a permanent host of this uh, podcast and liable for everything we've ever said. Yeah, of course. Permanent and main host. Yeah, the main one. one. Yeah. Thank you for having us on Trash Future, Musa. The we guy who, <laughs> personally, if they got to Musa, I wouldn't say anything more after that. So that would be enough to shut me up. I'm, I'm unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm depressingly easy to get to. So if they only want, I mean. My opinions are so sort of mundane and bog standard. No one's come for me. Um, so yeah, everyone knows where yeah. I am. We usually ask the guests, where can people find you? And that's <laughs> not... <laughs> you can't the corners, yeah. yeah. Um, catch me outside. No, you can find me uh, uh, at Stadio on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Okwonga, at O-K-W-O-N-G-A. Um, but yeah, you can probably find me ranting about the futility of checks and balances mm. in football. Most places, actually. Well, uh-huh. Bars, pubs, online, what's Including up several yeah. undisclosed yeah. locations. That's right. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I, I just want to say, I think that, that, brings it, that brings it to a very nice close, I think. Uh, so I just want to say, number one, Musa, thank you very much for coming and uh, hanging out with us this evening and talking about football. Thanks for the deep dive. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for the deep dive. And just like, I like you get into the other... The wider context of this, because oh, it's absolutely. so important. It's so important. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, number yeah. two, none of us are feeling even remotely suicidal. Nope. So <laughs> we're all happy, yeah. uh, healthy. I'm yeah. I, making plans yeah. for the future. I, I have booked um, uh, Phonox, and I've booked E1 Studios. I have booked uh, I have booked club nights in the summer. I'm yep, feeling I'm, good. I, I'm looking forward to a bunch of lessons on how to fly a small plane. Which I will be conducting solo yeah. over some isolated territory. Alice won't be learning how to land. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> no, fl- she's a busy lady. <laughs> so, anyway, look, uh, thank you. Th- anyway, thank you very much again, Musa, for coming on. Uh, thank you to all of you out there in podcast land for listening. Uh, fuck the Super League, but also, you know, kind of fuck how it's been going as well yeah um we've returned from uh we went briefly from frying pan into fire we're now back in frying pan <laughs> that's right um, um and yeah but also yay also congratulations to all the regular people who don't have like a huge amount of like, social capital mm. who just stood up against this thing mm. you know yeah, shout out to them exactly. and that's the thing the, the lesson here is like people People showed out and protest works. It really Qatari works. Atari Ultras. <laughs> and uh, don't forget, we have a Patreon. Yeah. Five bucks a month. You get a second episode every week. If you would like to buy some A-series shares in Trash Future, right. uh, they have all of the debt, none of the voting rights. You can do that on the Patreon. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right. Um, so don't forget also to listen to Stadio uh, and listen to all the TF spinoffs. You know what they are. And mm-hmm. anyway, we'll see you in the bonus episode. But not where they are. In a couple of days.
Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. See you.